Hi, I'm Sam Cowan. I'm your host of the Smarter Coaching Podcast. Uh, On this podcast, I seek to bring in coaches, sports scientists, or others involved in coaching primarily endurance athletes, although we will delve into team sports from time to time. If you have a suggestion for a future guest, you can email me at smartercoachingllc at gmail.com. You can also visit the website, smartercoachingllc.com, where you can uh, access old episodes. Please, I ask of you to subscribe to this and leave a review wherever you get your podcast. So with that, let me introduce you to today's guest. Hey, welcome to Smarter Coaching Podcast. Uh, I am really excited to have Christy Ashwinden on to talk about her book, uh, Good to Go, which is about recovery. So Christy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is super. Um, I, I really feel lucky that I got to see you and Alex Hutchinson in person uh, back in, I guess it was late April up in Denver. The Rocky Mountain Triathlon Club had you guys out, and that was really uh, a super format. And I thought it was really interesting, you two going back and forth. And um, I, I thought that was a neat way of doing that. Oh, thanks. It was a lot of fun for us. Um, yeah, Alex is a good friend of mine and really like his work a lot. And, you know, we've talked a lot um, about our reporting and, you know, always swapping ideas back and forth. So it was a lot of fun to be on stage with him. Yeah. And I am uh, working on getting him uh, as a future guest on the podcast as well. We're just trying to uh, schedule time. So by the time yeah. this drops, I may have that done. And uh, if folks uh, want to certainly come back and listen for that one. Let's dive into this here. First, tell folks a little bit about your sport and also academic backgrounds. I think that is really important in looking at where you're coming from in terms of of this book and your other writings. Yeah, sure. So I have been a lifelong runner. Um, Running was the first sport that I did competitively. Uh, My dad was actually a runner, and so I sort of watched him doing it, and that sort of made me interested. But actually, the way that I ended up running in high school was that I went out for the volleyball team. I'm relatively tall. Um, For a girl, I was tall, and so that seemed like a good sport for me, but it turned out that I was terrible and couldn't make the team. I didn't even make, you know, the lowest team, the D team. And so I went out for cross country because they took everyone, and it turned out I figured out right away that this was something I was good at. Um, You know, by the end of the season, I was the top runner on the team and, you know, running on varsity and all of that. So anyway, I've been running this whole time for the most part. Um, I went to University of Colorado where I ran track and cross country. But what happened is actually at the end of my freshman year, um, I got injured. I had a severe knee injury as a result of actually a car accident and I had to uh, redshirt. And during that time when I wasn't able to run, I started cycling. And so next thing I knew, I was a cyclist and I was actually racing for the CU cycling team. Um, And then I also started cross-country skiing. That was the thing that uh, we didn't really have in New Mexico where I was from. Um, But I started doing that and really fell in love with it. And so after college, I bike raced pretty um, seriously for a few years, but then I uh, switched to cross-country ski racing. I guess I took a few years off. I was It was something that I was always doing sort of for fun and to keep fit in the, the winter. Um, but sometime after college, when I was a little bit older, I decided I wanted to be serious about that. And so I raced on a, an elite team, the Team Rosignol. And then at one point, I actually moved to Europe and was racing over there for the Swiss Rosignol team. And that was a lot of fun, a really great uh, experience. So that's my athletic background. Um, Oh, and I should just say, I um, 
uh, last fall took up a new sport for the first time in a long time, which was cyclocross. I'd never done it before. It's something that sort of looks ridiculous. Um, for those who don't know, it's you're basically riding on this short track um, that goes, there's usually grass and trees and roots. It's not really mountain biking. It's sort of a hybrid between road racing, like a road race crit and a mountain bike race. And they're um, on the course, there are a few barriers that you have to jump over. And so usually you have to jump off your bike and carry it and run for short spurts. And so it's kind of a silly um, pursuit, but I just really fell in love with it and planning to do some more of that this fall. So still trying new things at, at my age. Well, good for you. And, and I, you know, I have, uh, I worked at USA Cycling for a while, so I don't consider mm-hmm. cyclocross to be silly at all. Uh, <laughs> it's totally silly, but fun, fun, silly. Well, it's also one of those things that it also, it all, because it's it was all season conditioning for European pros is kind of part of cycling or cyclocross's appeal, and it seems like the the if there's a cyclocross race that almost guarantees crappy weather. Oh, it does. In <laughs> fact, you know, one of the races I did last year was in the snow. It was great, but it's really great training for ski racing, which is something I still, I don't really race seriously at all, but I, I really do enjoy Nordic skiing. And so it's, it's great preparation for that. But, you know, honestly, the thing that I love about it is that you're sort of going balls to the wall to, for 40 minutes. It's just really mm-hmm. hard, but it also has this component of skills and also yes. sort of a, a cognitive component where you have to really concentrate. And I found that I really enjoy that. It really takes you out of everything else. You're just concentrated in that moment. And I also enjoy Enjoy the fact that you know you you do multiple laps of the same course, and so you know I'm still pretty crappy at it. And so what what happens is over the course of the race, I find myself you know figuring things out and getting a little bit better on my skills for the course. You know, often the conditions are de- deteriorating, so it makes <laughs> it a little more challenging too. You know, thing you rode on the first lap has now become such a mud pit that you have to go around or run through or whatever. But but yeah, it's just a ton of fun. So really enjoyed that, and I found throughout my life that I really enjoy variety and although I've been a runner my whole life and cycling is another thing that's been pretty constant I sort of cycle in and out of what I'm doing most and I I do enjoy trying other things I've also done master swimming Um, I've done some climbing I I really enjoy uh, climbing peaks and things like this so I like mixing it up rather than being like so single-minded on a singular pursuit well, one of the things I really appreciate, because I've I, similar type of thing for myself. Later in life, I I took I retook up whitewater kayaking, and mm-hmm. and really enjoying that. And you know, it's never too old to sample sports. And we talk about that for right. little kids in uh, in you know, in kind of in my world of long term long term athlete development. We talk about sports sampling for kids, but there's nothing to say that those of us who are uh, let let's say not kids anymore can't start mm-hmm. sampling sports and having fun and doing things and, and maybe some of it is you know you know you start to get those injuries or creaks where maybe the pounding from the running is starting to take its toll and so you look for things that are a little more easy on the on the joints perhaps and I won't say easier on the body because yeah uh, cyclocross racing certainly is not easy on the body but uh it's different or you know cycling for runners and I thought it's interesting your your career path is one I've heard a lot from cyclists is you know, one running kind of the sport of last resort to some extent. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> one that I've tried all the team sports. I'm not very good. Cross country, I can cut anybody. You find out, well, damn, that's what I'm good at. Right, right. Cycling is gets all the injured runners and they find out, oh, I'm pretty good at this too. So uh, a, 
a common career trajectory in terms of how uh, people end up in cycling um, with that. Absolutely. You know, I said my dad was a, a runner. Well, he had to stop running, you know, probably close to, I don't know, 15, many years ago, let's say. Um, but I got him into cycling. Uh, my husband gave him one of his old racing bikes and, you know, it took a few years, but now he, I mean, he bikes more miles than I do. He's really into it. And, you know, his bike club is full of a lot of former runners. So it's a yeah. common trajectory for yeah. sure. Yeah. We'll touch on briefly about your academic background, and then we'll get, we'll get sure. into the book here. It's been fun. We I could keep talking about that stuff forever, <laughs> but uh, we I do want to talk to you about your book because that's probably why people clicked on the podcast. Yeah, sure. So um, I have a degree, an undergraduate degree in biology. I thought I wanted to be a scientist. I've always been kind of a science nut, um, but then um, you know. So the next step after college was to apply to graduate school and go get my PhD, which had sort of been my plan for a while. I guess when I was in high school, I for a little while thought maybe I wanted to be a doctor because I was very interested in medicine, which it turns out is something that I've written a lot about. So I do actually sort of touch on medicine in my current career. But anyway, I realized that actually being a doctor meant hanging out in hospitals and uh, around sick people, which wasn't what I wanted to do. And so then I thought, you know, I was going to be go. I wanted to be a field biologist, actually, which is sort of what I did as an undergraduate. Um, but the problem is to get your PhD, you have to find a very narrow focus, you know, very, very, very narrow subject matter that you're going to become an expert in. And the problem was that I'm a generalist. And that's how I sort of ended up in journalism, because journalism allows me to, you know, learn about many, many things. You know, I can really sample from a wide array of subjects. I can write about a large number of different things. And so, um, you know, I, I found myself unable to decide where to apply to graduate school or into what program. And then a friend told me about uh, the science writing program at University of California, Santa Cruz, which I ended up going to. It's, it's a program that still exists, and it really specializes in taking scientists and turning them into writers, um, journalists mostly, but also communicators. And it was interesting. I was the only one in my class without an advanced degree. Most of the people, you know, there were people with PhDs and master's degrees. I think we had a, a physician as well. Um, but it really turned out that those those degrees weren't all that useful, um, you know, for this new career that I'm in now, which is science journalism. Um, but it's been incredibly uh, rewarding to me. I, I really love the job. I love being able to learn all sorts of new things. Whatever thing I'm curious about, I can go write a story, and it gives me an opportunity to talk to the world's top experts on that subject. And, you know, I do a lot of reading of the scientific literature, which I still enjoy. Believe it or not, I go to scientific conferences. Um, in fact, I'm going to the American College of Sports Medicine meeting uh, next week, in fact, giving a talk there. Um, so yeah, I still, you know, keep my, I still am in science in just sort of a different kind of way. Well, that that's great. I, I love the fact that I share that generalist perspective with you. i I really am curious about a lot of different things, and uh, I'm actually looking forward to reading. I, I, I'm looking at the back jacket of your cover right now. David Epstein wrote a little blog yeah. on there, and he's got a book that's out now about being a generalist, and I'm looking forward to reading it because that really speaks to me as someone who I, – I, I thought about the Ph.D. route at one time too, but mm -hmm. kind of like you, it's like, well, great. I'm going to know a whole lot about a really narrow, narrow, narrow right. line that's just not that interesting to me. Um, with that. 
Right. Yeah, yeah. I've I've read his book. It's terrific. It's called Range, and it's a phenomenal read. And it's kind of you know reading it, I was just like, uh huh, uh huh, yeah. uh huh. I felt like he was sort of telling the story of my career trajectory. So yeah. I enjoyed it immensely. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's, it's uh, on my list to read. I just haven't quite gotten to it yet because partly I had to read your book before. Oh <laughs> well, thank you for that. This. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so the book is about recovery. How did it? How did this book come about? Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so recovery is something that as I look back on my athletic career, I realize that it's really sort of the missing link, the thing that I never quite managed to master. And you know, looking back on my athletic career, I had so many seasons where my season was cut short by either injury or illness. And at the time, I really, you know, chalked this up to bad luck. It was like every year, you know, when I was really reaching peak fitness, all of a sudden, you know, something bad would happen. I would tweak my hamstring or I would get sick and then boom, season was over or, you know, I had had to take time off and then, you know, couldn't get back to where I was. And looking back, I realized that this wasn't just an accident, that really what was going on here was that I was not paying close enough attention to recovery. It was something that I hadn't mastered. And, you know, I think one of the, the lessons from my own experience is that it wasn't that I wasn't taking rest days. It wasn't that I, you know, wasn't doing some of these things that you're supposed to do. But the problem is that recovery is very individual. And so so I was sort of looking around and seeing what other people were doing and sort of what the standards in the field were instead of paying attention to myself and my own body and how I was responding to training. Because it turns out, and I can see this very clearly in retrospect, that I responded very quickly to training, which is great. It meant that I got fit fast, but I also required more recovery than most people. And so I was very vulnerable to overtraining, even at training volumes, you know, that would not appear to be that great. And so what I really needed was less training and more rest than most other athletes. And I think if I had figured that out earlier, you know, I may have had like a few better seasons and whatnot. And it was something that I did start to understand um, toward the end of my career. But it was sort of, you know, I feel like this is the book I wish I had read back when I was in high school or college. Well, well, hopefully a lot of people will read the book and learn from, you know, your experience and uh, take recovery a lot more seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think that there has been a move to emphasize recovery more, you know, in the nineties when I was doing a lot of my most serious racing, um, there was so much emphasis on volume and everyone just wanted to do as much volume as they could. And the idea was just like, you know, you do as much training as you can possibly tolerate. Well, I think now we understand and it seems pretty straightforward that you actually want to do the minimum amount of training you need in order to, you know, force those adaptations and those responses that you're looking for. And so more isn't necessarily better. Yeah. Well, our, our, uh, our colleague and, and, friend Kristen Diefenbach, who's quoted in your book in several places, was really the first person who got me thinking about rather than overtraining, that it may be under recovery. And right. a light bulb went on with me at that point in time. And I mean, I don't know when she first brought that to me 12, 15 years ago. She and I have known each other for a long time. But I began to think more and more about your, you're right. Because even when my own experience of times were, and I, I was clinically overtrained, if you look at some of the Blood values, my testosterone levels were through the floor at one point in time. Cortisone levels were through the roof. I really mm -hmm. did myself in. And I think it was not so much the training, but maybe that I wasn't recovering as well because of other things going on in my life at the time that 
I I wasn't taking the rest that I needed and really taking care of myself and work stress and other things like that. Um, and, and we need to take that recovery, I think, as seriously as we take our training and, and planning for it. Absolutely. And I have a whole chapter in the book um, about sort of the mental aspect of recovery and the psychology of it. And also, I think the chapter is called something like quieting the mind. And I believe that this is one that that uh, Kristen Diefenbach appears in several times. She's very smart on this stuff. Um, but really, I think the insight here, and the reason I devoted a whole chapter in the book to it to this is that to your body, stress is stress. And what so often happens is that athletes sort of um, don't recognize or don't appreciate um, the amount of stress they're placing on their body with just general life stress, whether it's stress from work, whether it's stress at home. It can't even be, you know, the stress and sort of the anxiety of performing and racing. And so if you're going to really master recovery, you have to master, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be meditation, but you need to find some sort of management for your stress. And you need to find a way to reduce the stress in your life. Because as long as you have that stress going on, you're not you're not fully recovering. And we can't completely eliminate stress. But you've got to figure out a way to manage it and, and to sort of mitigate it. Well, I think that's a key point with stress is that you know, there are stressors, there are things that happen in your life, and it's not necessarily the activity, it's your response to it. And two people can react to the exact same event in very, very different ways because of how they handle that stress and maybe the emotion to it of, you know, something as simple as we've all had happen to us is, you know, driving down the road and you get caught off in traffic. Well, some people blow a gasket and other people go, yeah. eh, you know what, nobody was hurt let it move on and there has to be that sense i think within the athlete of what do i really need to stress about and focus on because and what can i control and that's I, I think right that's the psychological part that you know your book delves into and and the modalities are really you know people look at those things a lot of times about you know the normatech pants and ice baths yeah. and all these things that you do physically but i think sometimes right. the mental part of that is left out it really is. And I have, you know, Kristen has some really great advice in that chapter for this. And I really like the way she approaches this with her athletes and really looking at it. She uses this really clever sort of budget approach of sort of thinking about how much stress, you know, you have to sort of accept that how much yeah. are you able to take and then deciding where is that come from and where, are the, what are the stresses you can't, you, know, you can't eliminate, you have to build them into your budget. Well, that's a good segue into uh, what I know is was one of your what turned out to be one of your favorite modalities, uh, the float tank. And why don't you oh, tell yeah. folks the story of the float tank and um, why you came to like it? Yeah. So this was something that I was doing purely for the book. Um, I really I was dreading it. I did not expect to like it one bit. So float tanks, uh, this used to be called sensory deprivation chambers. Um, they've now been rebranded because of course that name makes it sound like torture, which is exactly what I expected it to feel like. Um, now they're called float tanks because that really is what it feels like. You're floating there. Um, so it's a very small chamber with just a few inches. Actually, it's amazing how shallow they are, but a few inches of very salty water. So the idea here is the salt water, water makes your your body extremely buoyant the water is 
body temperature. So it feels neither warm nor cold. It's dark in there. It's quiet. And so you're basically sort of, you know, that first name sensory deprivation is, is right on. You're, you're sort of just fully in your body, in your head. Um, there's no outside sensory input really. And it's a very pleasant feeling to be floating in this tank. And I really expected that I was going to hate it. You know, I'm kind of a monkey brain and I thought I was going to get really bored, but it turned out I just, I really loved it. And what I sort of came to conclude is that these float tanks are really forced meditation for people like me who aren't good at meditating. So I really enjoyed it. In fact, um, I'm scheduled to go do another session here quite soon. I have a place locally that I go to. So it's one thing that I've continued to do um, beyond the book. And probably one of the few things that I tried that I expected to not like that I did like. That's fantastic. Um, When I was an undergraduate, uh, I was a psychology major, and we had a sensory deprivation tank. And I I did go into it one time, and I, I discovered that I'm really kind of claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. And um, it it took me a little while to get over that, and then not too long after that, there's a really old movie that probably very few people have ever seen called Altered States. Altered States, States yeah. <laughs> and, and after that, I wasn't sure I wanted to go in there. For those who have not seen the movie, it's probably almost everybody. William Hurt is a researcher, and I can't remember the whole details, but he goes in. I think he drops acid in this too at some point. Yeah, and has this like yeah. this goes back to being like Neanderthal man or something, and. It's kind of a really, in fact, I want to watch the movie again now to look at and see how bad and campy it was. But I remember <laughs> seeing that not long after my uh, first tanking experience. And my professor had seen it as well and goes, yeah, this is not going to do these things any good at all. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. That movie is actually based on the guy, John Lilly, I believe was his name, the inventor of these things. So it had, although the, the movie was very fictionalized, yes. <laughs> um, he was in fact, um, you know, the purveyor of these and the inventor. And he really was sort of looking after, you know, trying to attain altered states and, you know, was exploring with psychedelic drugs as well. So that, that really was the the genesis of these things so it's interesting that it's kind of come around to this different sort of purpose what's old comes back again so much that's in, in right. science and stuff uh yeah uh i, I remember uh, doing some work with hyperoxic training supplemental oxygen training and i found a paper by roger bannister where he had done this on mm-hmm. himself in the 50s and uh this kind of blew my uh my my colleague randy wilbur at the time uh, was uh, was doing a lot with altitude training. I, I found the paper and showed it to him, and it was one he had never seen either. And it was just kind of one. It's like, so we really have no new ideas, do we? Uh, when it we comes don't. Yeah. It. yeah, yeah, cool. nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Let me talk about another uh, modality here, one that um, I've done many times and is very again kind of old school. That came back, and this are uh, these are ice baths. What did you learn about ice baths other than that they're cold? Yeah, they're cold. They hurt like hell, right? They're very unpleasant. They're, uh, they sort of make you tough too, right? So when I was a bike racer, we used to do these. I have, I have always hated them. I'll just, I'll just say, but I had a teammate who was really into them and she convinced me I did. I remember one stage race, we were at this week long stage race and we put, um, bags of ice in the bathtub and try and sit in there for as long as we could. And the idea here was that it was going to expedite recovery. And there are all kinds of claims made about how it's you know going to flush lactic acid and 
do all of these things. Um, what, what basically happens when you ice is that you get that area cold, and so your body sort of um, brings all the blood into the core, so you're reducing blood flow to that area, um, which isn't, it turns out, isn't really very helpful. Um, it does seem to uh, reduce inflammation a little bit, um, which is another claim that's made for it, which is in fact true. Um, but it turns out that inflammation is actually something you want and need if you're going to recover. Like inflammation is part of your body's healing process. And so exactly. you really, you want to keep it going. And so I think the analogy here is like, you know, you've done this hard workout, you've caused some damage there to your muscles. What you really want is blood flowing. You want, you can think of the inflammatory agents and and all of these things that are coming through the blood as, as like the cleanup crew. And you want to get them you know, to the site of the accident as fast as you can. So you don't actually want to impede blood flow. You want, you want to improve it or you want to keep it going. And that can be with the warm down or, or heat or whatever. But, but it turns out that icing um, is probably not a good idea. And now we actually have some, some pretty intriguing evidence um, from multiple um, studies that seems to imply that it's actually not, not only does it not, so it's, it's pretty well established that it does not reduce soreness and it um, does not, uh, you know, make, make you less sore the next day. But there is some sort of interesting evidence that it could actually impede healing and impede, um, you could actually get sore. Uh, you could, it, it actually isn't, it, uh, let me start over. Um, there's actually some intriguing evidence that it could actually blunt the training effect a little bit. And this goes back to the inflammatory stuff. So if you're reducing inflammation, you're reducing healing and that healing is, you know, that's the stuff that makes you fitter, faster, stronger. So there's a study that I talk about in the book where they actually took people and they put them on an exercise on a strength training program. And the interesting thing was that they would then ice one limb, but not the other. So they would do, you know, arm curls or something or something on the legs. And then they would just ice one arm or one leg. And the the limb that was iced actually had fewer strength gains than the other one. And there were some differences they found with, you know, protein recruitment and things like that. Um, so it actually looks as though icing is not just not helpful, but it's it's probably a bad idea. Right. Yeah, my, my take on this, and I've, I've done ice baths in the past. And um, when I was training for my the, the last marathon I ran, which I think was 2008, I did some. I did some of these. I, I kind of uh, did what you did. I experimented a lot of things. I luckily at that time had access to lots of cool toys, uh, mm-hmm. and so ice baths were one that were um, literally a cool toy. And right. Then also had the Normatec pants, which I want to talk about in a second too. And I, I long. I kind. I kind of believed that the ice baths were working, and we'll get. I want to ask you about the anticipatory response thing as well, but. I also began to later think that, well, it's not only do I believe it's working, but also if I'm going to sit in an ice bath for 20 minutes, you know, and somebody asks me, does it work? Well, it turns out I look pretty stupid if I say, <laughs> yeah, I do it, but it's not really working and everything else in this cognitive dissonance idea comes into play. <laughs> of, it's kind of like when you pay a lot of money to go see a movie and somebody asks you how it was, you, you got to tell them good because otherwise, why'd you drop, you know, $12 or $15 to watch a yeah. movie? So that, that has always been through my mind. But I, um, and, and like you said in the book, the hard part is you can't really, or it's very, very challenging to do a double blind control study with things like ice baths because you know you're getting cold water or not. Right. Although there, you do have a mention in the book about an attempt to, kind of do a, a, a blinded study anyway 
And uh, but that's challenging in this area because people know that they're getting some kind of a treatment, or unless you really can you know fool them in some way that is uh, creative in doing that uh, part of it. So uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I'll just say, you know, I have a whole chapter in the book about placebos, and yeah. you know, icing is you know would would appear to be a great placebo because we have very good evidence. Painful, painful placebos are more effective than inert ones. Um, so a placebo shot is more effective than a placebo pill. Um, placebo surgery, I actually wrote a story for 538. I think the title was something like the headline was surgery is one hell of a placebo yes. um, where there are so many things about the ritual of it. And, you know, ice baths hurt. They sort of feel unpleasant. So you have this sense that like, oh, this is so unpleasant. It must be working. You know, I can feel it. And, <laughs> um, you know, in that placebo chapter, I, I sort of go into much greater detail about this stuff. But there is a very strong um, placebo component in a lot of these modalities that people are using for recovery. And, you know, at the end of the day, I sort of argue that although, you know, it's important to sort of realize that it's not always a reason to just dismiss everything out of hand. Yeah. I, I really did enjoy Dave Martin. Um, David is the, yeah. uh, I, I can't remember the exact title, but basically he's the high performance head sports science guy for the Philadelphia 76ers. Did a long stint at the Australian Institute of Sport and has published tons of papers on a variety of topics. Um, and I, I kind of like the way that he, he doesn't use the term placebo. He uses, I think it's anticipatory response or something like that, that that you anticipate is working. And maybe talk a little bit about his thoughts on that and what you, yeah. what you gleaned from it. I, I think that's a really cool and fascinating look at it. Yeah, he calls it the expectation effect, which yes. is something I really like and have sort of adopted for myself too. Because you know, when we think of placebo, we usually kind of think of that as meaning, oh, if it's a placebo, it means it didn't work or it's not really doing anything. <clears throat> but expectation effect really gets to the heart of what's going on here. And that is, if you expect to feel a certain way, or you have some sort of expectation of an event, that expectation can, in fact, influence your actual experience of the thing. And so, for example, if you are icing with the expectation that you will be less sore the next day, then when the next day rolls around, your experience of that soreness may be altered or influenced by the fact that you iced. So you may feel like, well, I'm sort of sore, but I, I'm sure that I'm less sore than I would have been because I'm expecting that. And so it feels maybe more manageable because you've done something and you sort of feel like you've you've made a difference, whether or not that's the case. Um, but there's also some really intriguing studies that that show that you know, placebos can actually have physiological responses that you can measure in people's bodies. So it's not just a matter of like fooling yourself or thinking something's working when it's not. Um, there's some good studies uh, looking at pain responses and, you know, you can get someone accustomed to an opioid or something like that and then, you know, give them something if they expect that that is going to be a pain medication and it's not, they can actually have, um, you know, actual pain, pain relief, but also some physiological responses with that that indicate that, you know, it's not just a matter of them being fooled. I, I find this whole area fascinating. I find I find the sham surgery information to be really amazing. That they, yeah. I think some of the studies I've read, uh, or at least reports on, where um, you know people who have meniscus tears and they, you know, half the group they actually go in and do the surgery. The other half they they put them under. They 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 do the arthroscopic, but they actually don't do anything after that. And 
close them back up and send them on the way. And six months later, when they do an evaluation, those people have had, you know, on average in that group, the same response and recovery as the people who actually had the meniscus surgery done. And as someone who's had three knee surgeries, I'm yeah. really fascinated by this going, so I could have avoided those maybe, but um, probably not one of them for sure. On there. Yeah, it's yeah. it's fascinating. And it's at this point, it's very well established that, you know, basically no one should be getting arthroscopic surgery for meniscal tears. This is pretty well established. There may be, you know, very rare exceptions, but th- this is, you know, it's not just one outlier study. This has been replicated. And, and yet, you know, these, these surgeries continue and they continue because, yeah, you know, they appear to be very effective. You know, people who get them, you know, what's really interesting is in these studies that compare the real surgery to a sham surgery, um, the people who receive the sham surgery are just as pleased as the ones who got the real surgery. Yeah. And it really comes down to, you know, people's expectations about things. And yeah, the other, I think the other thing to consider here is that by the time someone becomes sort of desperate enough that they're willing to do surgery or they're looking at surgery, they're probably sort of at the low point in the trajectory. You know, if you just were to do nothing and to look at how the healing process would go, that's probably the bottom, the bottom of it, right? Like no matter what's going on, they're probably starting to get better or will be getting better. And so you have to consider that there's also sort of the natural history to consider, but we so often dismiss this. And this is how a lot of really dodgy treatments become popular because, you know, people get really particularly injured athletes, you know, they get so desperate and at that, that low point, they're willing to do anything. And, you know, really what most of these things are doing is giving them something to do while they wait. Well, I, I, I got to give hats off to my orthopedic guy here in town that um, I went to see last time my knee was giving me problems. And I, I'm, and he knew my, my activity level. And mm-hmm. so, and he still said, look, let's try the least invasive things first. And yeah. I, I, because that was actually going into it, that was my thought. Uh, to be honest with you, I kind of one of those patients that doctors sometimes don't like because I'm a little bit knowledgeable and I'll look, <laughs> at, I'll, yeah. I'll look at the research and see what works. And I love the fact that he said that. He goes, you know, if if this if these things don't work, we can always cut you open. And I was like, right. I looked at him like, where are you from, dude? And one of the things I think is he's also a fairly young doctor too, and maybe mm-hmm. just has come along in a different time and has looked at it a different way and said, you know, let, let's try this for six weeks and see if it works. And you know, if not, we can always put you under and do the orthoscopic surgery, and it's always there. But um, I, I was really impressed by him, and that's I yeah. recommended him to many a friend um, in doing that. Um, well, along those lines, and um, I know you're on a little bit of a time schedule here, so I want to get to a couple of other things. Like, sure. Uh, so I, let's let's talk about massage really quickly. Sure. So massage is probably one of the most popular recovery modalities, right? I mean, everyone loves it. It feels good. And even if you're getting sort of like a a rough and hard sports massage, it's still, it's sort of like hurting in a good way, right? And we feel like something good is going on. And so I was really sure that there must be some like really well-established physiological benefits that massage is delivering. And so it was really interesting to see that, that, that's actually not the case. Um, people love massage, and when you look at sort of qualitative um, results from it, you can find a lot of good things, and people do report feeling better after them. Um, but there's not a lot of, you know, 
idea, some of the ideas like that it's flushing lactic acid out of your muscles, that doesn't hold up. Some of the other explanations that I found really didn't, didn't seem to be borne out by the science. Um, but I think that this is an example of something that has benefits that are sort of less tangible and a little bit difficult to measure in a quantitative way. And what I mean by that is, you know, at its most basic level, recovery is rest and relaxation. It's giving your body sort of the the lack of stress, you know, the, this stress-free, quiet environment in which to heal and, and to regenerate, right? And that can be really hard to do in, in today's busy world. And so one thing that massage does is, you know, it makes you lie down for an hour and relax and take time out. You're not looking at your phone and you're not hopefully not thinking about work, you know, and you're, you're really checking in on your body too. And one thing that um, numerous athletes that I talked to about this cited um, was this body awareness and the fact that yeah. when you're getting a massage, particularly, you know, a post-race or a post-workout massage, it's really a chance to check in and, and see, oh, wow, I'm really sore on that particular muscle or, or oh, that, that, part of me feels, you know, tender. And it's a way to to sort of get this body awareness that can be so important in sort of recognizing how much recovery you need, where you're at, and things like this. And so that's something that's hard to measure in a study, but it's something that can be really beneficial to athletes. And, you know, even just taking that time to relax, um, to not be doing something stressful is probably the most important aspect of it. And my takeaway from a lot of the modalities that you looked at was that they, they require you to be inactive and just be still. The, the Normatec um, boots, which are a system that compresses air and squeezes, sort of gives you a massage type of feeling to help blood flow and do other things. But if nothing else, you, when you're wearing those pants, you can't do anything for the period of time you're doing it. And I love right. the example in your book about the coach who said, well, at least the athlete who was using them isn't out, you know, chasing girls late at night. Um, right. it, you know, you, you can't do that when you're in the boots. For one thing, uh, are these uh, big pants that look kind of like hockey goalie pads to me? Yeah, right. And uh, it's like, you're right. You you can't do that. It's not the and the old line about it's not it's not really chasing the girls. It's the problem. It's staying out all night to find them. That is the problem. Right. That interrupts. Yeah. Um, probably the thing that I'm going to ask you about now is, so what's the number one recommendation you have for recovery? What's the number one modality that you would recommend for recovery? Oh yeah, this is easy. And it was really interesting. You know, I, I searched long and, and hard all these different modalities. I read hundreds of papers, talked to hundreds of people, and it, it turned out, you know, there really was one that that came out on top, and it, it wasn't even close. I mean, nothing else even came. You could all, add all the others together, and it wouldn't be as effective. And let me, this. Let, let me interrupt for a second. And what what's the cost of this modality? Well, if you do it right, it's absolutely free. There you go. Okay, now go ahead and tell right. folks uh, what that modality is. Yeah. Well, of course, it's sleep. It's sleep. And I'll just say, when you ask about the cost, it's it's free and it should be. I mean, the, the way to master it actually is to, you know, keep it simple. But we are at a time where there have now popped up all sorts of products and apps. <laughs> and um, Tom Brady has his $200 pajamas. You can buy all oh, of these yeah. things, you know, as a way of monetizing this legitimately useful recovery tool, which is sleep. 
And uh, and I have to say, the key here is not to buy a product or do a thing. The key is to make it a priority. I mean, I really do think that's the number one thing that people can do is to prioritize sleep, to schedule it into their day, to make it non-negotiable. Now, it's really interesting. Um, researchers have now come up with this new term. It's called bedtime procrastination. And this is for this thing that happens. Um, Sam, you were mentioning that you have been binging on Game of Thrones. Yes. So, you know, you told yourself you were going to go to bed at 10 o'clock but then you think well just one more episode you know one more episode and before you know it you're up till 1 a.m you know your your wake-up time is probably not negotiable because you have to be at work at a certain time and so all of a sudden you know instead of getting eight hours of sleep you're now down to six and that's problematic (laughs) okay first it's really scary that you figure that out and um, (laughs) yeah uh, yeah, the Game of Thrones references. I asked Christy at the start of the before we started recording if she was a, a watcher or not because I was going to do a joke about the fact that I'm here to talk to her about Game of Thrones. But um, I decided not to do that one. But I had to throw that in uh, at this time <laughs> since it just ended uh, recently in the time that we're recording this. But yeah, yeah, the sleep thing is is amazing because, like you said, one it's it's not sexy and it's not a you know something you can show your friends and. And do that, and it's not high tech, and it kills me when people are starting to look for, you know, something they can spend money on or something that might give you that little bit of edge, maybe, and but that's going to cost you, you know, hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars, and yet they don't take care of the things that are that are big, like a good, well-designed training plan with you know adequate rest and recovery in between, you know, in between training blocks, in between sessions, and yeah. That, you know, these things I, I see a lot of times on message boards about people, hey, I'm going to go out and do altitude training. And my first question to them is, is all the rest of your training squared away so that, you know, you have it down to now we're going to do that 1% thing that altitude training is. And I find out a lot of times that people don't have that. And I look at recovery, it's the same way. It's yeah. like sleep is the number one thing. Naps are wonderful. Um, huge nap mm-hmm. fan. And, um, you know, a buddy of mine has a T-shirt that says something about, I apologize to myself for not, you know, thinking naps were cool as a kid. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in that world, and I just it kills me that people don't take care of that. And I would throw in some nutritional things as well of just, you know, getting carbohydrate and hydrating and things like that. They're just things that don't really cost you anything or that you're already doing. And get those squared away before you do the float tanks, before you do the Norma Tech pants, before you... yeah. Uh, do these other things and um, and you know get that squared away and it's 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 free. Tom Brady two hundred dollar yeah. pajamas aside, uh, I don't have those and sometimes I sleep well. That's another issue for um, that. I hope to have someone else to come on and talk about sleep later on uh, a little more in depth with that. So. Um, yeah, I mean, sleep's a great a great topic. It's important. And I'll just say, like, I think a general takeaway from my book is that, you know, if you find yourself, you know, with someone is trying to sell you something or make, you know, a basic physiological thing like hydration um, really complicated, that's yeah. a sign that, you know, you're gone, you've gone astray. It doesn't need to be so complicated. And you're really best off sticking to the basics, you know, drink to thirst. That's, that's mm-hmm. actually the simplest and most scientific way to handle hydration and yet we have you know these companies and these experts swooping in and telling us that it's all very complicated and we can't trust ourselves we can't trust our bodies and I think that's a really dangerous idea this idea that 
you know, we have to outsource um, ideas about what to do. I think that at the end of the day, the most important skill that any athlete can develop is an ability to read their own bodies, to understand their own cues. And this goes back to the beginning of our conversation. You know, as an athlete, I was looking around and saying, well, I need to be training this many hours because that's what everyone else is doing instead of saying, oh, wait, but my body is telling me that I'm tired and I'm responding really well at this level. So I should, you know, maybe I should ramp it back a little and give myself a little bit of, of recovery. And so, you know, when you, when you outsource this and when you look to um, outside sources to tell you, instead of learning to read your body, know what it feels like for you to be tired, um, to be hungry, to be thirsty, all of these things and paying attention to how you're responding to things. Um, because this idea that you need a scientist there holding your hand, it's, it's really unduly complicating things. Well, as we as we wrap up here, I'm going to I want to I want to tease my favorite part of the book that will get people mm-hmm. to go out and buy this. And um, I am a craft beer lover, and Ooh. I am so happy that I live in a town that has about 29 craft breweries I can go and and uh, visit regularly. <laughs> and uh, you do address beer in uh, I think it's the very first chapter of the book, and. I love the fact that you use that and also that it opened your eyes up to some of the problems in measuring recovery and looking at the science and the scientific method of doing it. And I thought it was a really brilliant and, and fun way to really give people maybe who don't have a strong science background a little bit of insight into kind of how studies work and you yeah. know, how, how results can be written and, and stuff. And so uh, I, I would, you know, you uh, you give the definitive answer on beer in that chapter, right? I do, I do. Yeah, I hope everyone will read it. The first chapter is all about beer and running and exercise. So, and, yes. and it's pretty interesting, as you know. So there's a good teaser. I, I agree. It really was a fun way to start the book off and, and a nice hook, I think, for folks uh, and, and a good introduction into the whole area of, of recovery. Um, so... Well, Christy, I want to thank you for taking some time out and talking about your book, Good to Go. Uh, the, the full title is Good to Go, What the Athlete and All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery. And uh, I really did find it a great read. And again, someone with a background in exercise physiology, I looked at it and was like, this is a really cool way to write and present the information for folks, uh, maybe a little more of a lay background. And you keep it entertaining, and I, I think it's cool all the stuff that you did, uh, you know, your own firsthand experience. You're important here. I think that's also important for people to to understand. And I think for a lot of people too, it's you know, sleep aside, it's sometimes finding the thing that you feel like works for you and helps you out is really important in this. No matter kind of what other people are saying, at, at the end of the day, we're all a, a, in an in of one, unfortunately. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. I appreciate it. So once again, Christy Ashwinden, thanks for uh, joining me today. And uh, folks, go out, buy the book. I'll put a link into, in, into it in the show notes and uh, you know, find it at your favorite bookseller. Thanks so much. Yep. Hey, everybody. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Christy Ashwinden as much as I enjoyed doing it. She is really a great person to talk to. And I want to jump in here at the end because... We kept mentioning something over and over, and we never really dove into it. And that's the fact that many of these recovery modalities, massage being one, 
uh, ice baths being another perhaps, but massage is probably the most notorious for this, often make the claim that it will help you get rid of lactic acid. So I wanted to do a little bit of a dive into lactic acid and lactate. So these terms are often used interchangeably. Chemically, they are different. Uh, lactic acid is, as it says, an acid, and lactate is a salt of that acid. And um, I, I'm in the school of thought, and there's different schools on this, is that our bodies during exercise don't really produce lactic acid. We produce lactate, and the acidity of those hydrogen protons come from some other source. Now, that's the real key question is what's the other source? So uh, I, I will use it the terms interchangeably here because we use them interchangeably during the podcast. But one thing you got to understand about lactate is it is not a waste product. Okay, it is, while it is a product from anaerobic glycolysis from the breakdown of glycogen and glucose when there's not sufficient oxygen present or the muscle really can't go anywhere or, or that lactate can't uh, be absorbed, number of reasons that are far more complicated than I want to get into right here. But when you go hard, you produce lactate and you dump it into your bloodstream. And it is used as a fuel source by the heart, by other muscle tissue. And when you stop exercising, uh, it goes to the liver and it actually turns it into glycogen. So this is a fuel source. But a big claim is made that, uh, you know, you want to get rid of this. You want to get rid of the lactic acid because the acidity is not good for you. And certainly the acidity during exercise uh, does impair performance. So if it gets too high, it will cause you to slow down. But one of the problems with the modalities looking at recovery is that typically what happens is, let's say you went out and did a series of really hard sprints, like five by 30 seconds with you know maybe a minute or a minute and a half recovery between each one. You're probably going to dump a lot of lactate in your bloodstream and your acidity is going to get higher. Well, if you just, after that last sprint, you just did nothing, within a couple of hours, your lactate levels in your blood will be back down to pretty much close to normal. Uh, and that's right, or that's less than two millimoles per liter. If you do a cool down, you will buffer that acidity and uh, take care of that lactate much faster because the primary way we get rid of that acid is by breathing out as carbon dioxide. So one of the things you can really do to speed up getting rid of that acidity and returning your body to homeostasis is doing a cool down. In which case, it may be a matter of, of you know, 10 or 15 minutes, depending on how much, how hard you went, how much lactate there is in there, how much your city changed, all those factors. So the idea that if you, let's say you do that hard workout, that 5 by 30 seconds, or maybe you go out and run a 5K race, you know, on, on Saturday, and then you decide, I'm going to go in on Monday and get a massage done, because let's face it, massages feel great. Uh that lactate that you produced on Saturday morning during that 5K or during that hard workout is long gone. And the, the massage that the massage therapist is giving you that time is not doing anything to move it out because it's been long gone. Uh, even, even a few hours later, you're, you're not going to have measurable levels in there or they should have returned to normal under most conditions. So the, the claim that these things will help you, you know, get rid of, uh, lactic acid faster unless you're doing something immediately after exercise you got to keep in mind the physiology there so i did want to jump in and just clarify that a little bit because like i said we mentioned that three or four times and that's a big claim that's made and uh the the question is how do you you know how's that work uh if you just keep walking around for a little bit after a hard run you will help to return your lactate levels to normal faster 
If you do a little more active cool down, you'll probably be a little bit faster. So uh, be wary of claims of things that are going to help you get rid of that lactic acid, lactate, uh, that you're going to have to do hours after the exercise to, to do that. And the best thing you can do is do a good cool down to help with that and to uh, blow off that acidity as carbon dioxide. So thanks and look forward to uh, you guys joining us on our next podcast. So once again, this is Sam Callen, your host of the Smarter Coaching Podcast. Uh, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions or comments, you can email me at smartercoachingllc at gmail.com. Thank you very much. Have a great day.